Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and African Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network series of podcasts interviewing scholars throughout the humanities and social sciences. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm blessed to be in dialogue today with my guest, Karen Barton. She is professor of geography, GIS, and sustainability at the University of Northern Colorado. She is the author of the new book, Africa's Jula Shipwreck, Causes and Consequences of a Humanitarian Disaster, published in Lanham, Maryland, by Lexington Books, 2020. Karen, it's an honor to be with you today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Barbalat. Thank you. Um, To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? And were there any formative events in your early life that stimulated the scholar you would later become? Oh, thank you. Um, Great question. I I grew up on the East Coast in New Jersey and Vermont. And uh, I would say that uh, we had a very deep connection to nature, especially in Vermont. And that certainly influenced my desire to study geography, uh, especially cultural and environmental geography. Uh, as I went to undergrad and then later on graduate school at the University of Arizona. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? Um, I was in Senegal for the first time in 2016 on a Fulbright-Hayes Fellowship from the Department of Ed. And I was there to study something known as the Great Green Wall of the Sahara and Sahel Initiative, which is a plan to build a wall of trees, an acacia-based ecosystem across the Sahel in response to desertification and climate change. And when I was there and, and I was telling locals about this project, this multinational project, they quite literally told me that it was a great project, but it was the wrong one and that here's something I should focus on instead. And that's when for the first time in my career as an Africanist geographer, I had learned about the Jola shipwreck, which led to the loss of more lives than the Titanic. Uh, and the latter is a disaster that we know so much about. And the former is, is something that we know so little about. So I came back to Colorado and began investigating the story and figuring out a way to returned to Senegal to do a multi-year project on the Jula shipwreck and how people were affected, 
but also how they organized in response to reclaim their communities and survive that trauma. What contribution does your book make to our understanding of trauma? Um, you know, I think, you know, I'm not an expert in trauma. Most of my work is in, you know, community resilience, but not specifically trauma. But I can say with my firsthand experiences that this West African context of how they responded to the Jula, they, they relied upon a lot of religious principles and tenets to help them survive a tragedy this big. This is something that Senegalese people oftentimes call their 9-11, which I think is very powerful because it also happened in September, a year after 9-11. And it was a trauma for them that they're still living every day. Um, so I think it tells us a lot about the way that communities can organize, not just on an individual level, but as collectives to help survive a trauma. What misconceptions about West Africa does your book challenge? And what assumptions about Senegal does your book challenge? Uh, you know, I would say to answer that question, at least in the United States, I don't know if we have a widespread understanding of what happens in Senegal in general. You know, so to answer that question, I think it helps introduce readers not only to the tragedy, but to Senegal more generally. I mean, here is a place that is 95% Muslim, 4% you know, Christian, and then many of the remaining people in the country practice African traditional religions or some combination thereof. And they've had a Christian president and they're known for, for their peaceful coexistence among religious groups. And so the book, even though it was about the disaster itself, I'm hoping that it sheds light on what people oftentimes call Senegal's exceptionalism, what the Pew Foundation called Senegal's exceptionalism in this, what is oftentimes a religious fault zone of the African Sahel, where you see lots of conflicts. But in Senegal, and I, I suppose I'm fairly biased, but people are making that work. Uh, so it challenges the assumptions that people can't figure out ways to get along and to coalesce. How have Senegalese films and media coverage of this event differed from portrayals of this event elsewhere, such as in France? Can you contextualize how this tragedy, the Jula tragedy, has been portrayed in documentary films? Yes, that's a great, that's a great and important question. Um, so there haven't been many films about the Senegalese disaster. And I should say that even though the disaster predominantly affected Senegalese people, there were also other victims on board, French nationals, um, uh, other other individuals from Europe and parts of Africa, no Americans or Canadians were on board. Um, and that's part of the reason why I believe <clears throat> this story has never been covered by um, media in the United States in terms of film productions. So to this day, there's still 
no existing documentary about the Jola that was produced in the United States. There are no existing stories in publications like National Geographic, which is astounding. Um, there have been documentaries produced about numerous shipwrecks around the world, in, including the Doña Paz, which was the worst disaster in peacetime history, mm -hmm. disaster. Uh, there was also uh, uh, a couple of um, award-nominated films about the Sewol disaster in Korea, which has some parallels to the Jola disaster, given the number of school children were, who were on board. But other than one documentary I found uh, in a shipwreck series, I forgot what it's called, Ari, but I, I just recently stumbled upon it and they covered the Jula in a 10 minute piece, which was astounding because to date I've seen nothing about uh, the tragedy that unfolded there. What contribution does your book make to our understanding of migration? Yes, well, I hope that this book contributes to our understanding of migration in Africa, excuse me, and how many Senegalese are boarding the very pirogues that they use to fish uh, in order to head to Europe to find better lives and jobs. Um, you know, the pirogue fishing vessel, which I talk about in depth in my book, is, is an important part of Senegalese culture. And the fact that those fisheries off the coast of West Africa are dying as a result of piracy uh, has really forced many Senegalese to, to hop on board these boats, these same boats and head to Europe uh, to find work. And, it, and it's troubling, it's not just the fishing, it's also the way in which climate change is disproportionately affecting Africa. So. You know, I don't, I don't know if my book has touched on that in depth, but it certainly brings up those subjects as it comes to a close, uh, because these are, these are very pressing issues facing, facing Africa right now, as you know. And, um, and, and that's something that I think is highlighted uh, a little bit in the final chapter. Can you speak more to the silence surrounding the Jula tragedy. Why was the event underreported? Well, I think that's that's the million dollar question, right? Uh, and that's a that's a question that was brought up in a lot of focus groups here in the U.S. when we returned. So I I I held focus groups. I went to a lot of conferences to speak about this event and and. I can tell you what people say, and then I can tell you what I what I think based on my time in the region. Um, most of the people I've talked with will say that because the event happened in 2002, just one year after 9-11, and the year in which we were leading up to the war in Iraq, that this story got buried in the press. And, you know, I can understand that argument to a certain extent. But that doesn't explain why we still lack so little information about the Jula tragedy in 
publications like Nat Geo, and I don't mean to throw Nat Geo under the bus, but it's uh-huh. just fascinating that a subject like this has not been covered by many organizations like that. So I think the first answer is the world was preoccupied in 2002. And a lot of my students in, in focus groups and meetings would say, well, that was probably part of the reason why there wasn't a lot of coverage. But I can tell you anecdotally that there's also this sense that people still don't want to believe that this tragedy was as large as it was. So for example, Ari, when we returned to the US, my son who was then eight, he would he was part of the interviews that we did in Senegal. And he would come back and, and tell people the story of West Africa and how the Jola in so many ways parallels what happened on board what happened on board the Titanic in that Senegalese people were hopping on that ferry to seek better lives in the Northern part of their country. Not unlike how the people of Southampton hopped on board the Titanic to seek better lives in the US. And he was so excited about the story and his knowledge, his firsthand experiential knowledge. And Adults would often tell him, no, I think you're wrong about your statistics. I don't think 1,863 people died. I think, you know, what about the Lusitania? Weren't there more people on board that? And so I think there was this sense of disbelief, right? And then, you know, to answer this, this is a hard question, right? But I think the other part of it is that many people assume that tragedies are so normal in that part of Africa that we don't do the deep dive, so to speak, that we do with other parts of the world when these events unfold. So uh, I've had people tell me, well, maybe it's just the way the boat was designed. Maybe it's the way the ship was designed that there's not the same kind of ingenuity in in Africa, which is, is, is wrong on so many levels. If you see innovation coming out of Rwanda, for example. But so when I would tell those same people, well, did you know that the Jola was actually built in Germany? It was constructed in Germany to Senegalese specifications. People still were startled by that. They just saw it as another African tragedy that was unfolding. So, you know, to answer your question, one part of it is, is what people say. And then what I think is that we just, we just don't really give that part of the world enough attention in our stories, right? Right. And, and I think that's at the crux of it. So even with COVID, when uh, Rwanda and other African states were far ahead of the curve in terms of managing the pandemic, yeah, those stories were overshadowed by what was happening in New Zealand and how well they were doing. But Rwanda put in place community-based systems right from the outset, and they were a huge success story that we just didn't hear a lot about. Absolutely. And so for me, this fundamentally comes back to the way in which we conceive and perceive Africa as a region. Thank you for sharing that. Can you comment on the relationship between Senegal and the Gambia? How does the history of the relationship between Senegal and the Gambia set the stage for understanding the Jula disaster? Yeah. um, For anybody who's ever taken a look at a post-colonial map of, or a map of West Africa, you know that Senegal is divided by the Gambia. It kind of transects the middle, which has made 
geography really problematic from this colonial cartography. It's been carved up and, 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 and the Gambia's faced challenges as a result of this as well. But if it wasn't for that colonial cartography, it's, you could say that this Jula tragedy probably wouldn't have unfolded in the same way because the Jula line was built, it was constructed in order to get citizens who are living in the southern part of Senegal to the northern part without having to travel through the Gambia, which for a long time was commandeered by a dictator, President President Jame. And so that's why the Jula Ferry was built so that people wouldn't have to go through the Gambia or take the long road around to get to the northern part in Dakar or vice versa. So, um, that you know that relationship is really challenging for people in Senegal and the Gambia because they have family members on both sides of the borders. But I know people living and working in Senegal who until recently have never stepped foot in the Gambia and, and now they're able to do that, which is fantastic. But that wasn't always the case. They had to find a workaround and the, and the Jula was a great solution for that. It was easy, it was inexpensive. You could travel overnight and so citizens in Senegal were able to get back and forth uh, to their families in the North or in the South or to sell things in the North or in the South. So it seemed like a really fantastic viable solution um, to counter some of the problems associated with their neighbor in the middle. Who is Elie Diata Jean Bernard? Can you tell us about him and your relationship with him? Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's one of my favorite topics, Ari. Um, Eli Diata, uh, he is a professor of finance at the university in Ziegenshore. And that's a university that was not established at the time that the Jula disaster happened. So it, it was created in the wake of that, so to speak. But a friend of mine in Senegal introduced me to Eli in Ziegenshore. And he, at the time, was head of the Jula Survivors Network, and they are a very vocal organization who have been who has been lobbying the state of Senegal for some time to provide justice for the people of Casamance. And I got to know Ellie um, over the course of the past five years. He wrote the foreword to the book. Uh, he is uh, one of those individuals who has done his best over the past twenty years to amplify the narratives of people who lost their lives in the area. Uh, Ellie has a really important personal story because his brother, uh, who was a uh, football coach, soccer coach, died on board the ship along with 26 of his football players aged 11 to 14. And so this is a, this is a personal tragedy for Ellie and he's made it part of his life's mission to fight for the survivors and to fight for the families and the victims. And uh, one of the things that he is hoping to do is to make sure that the memorial in Casamance is built. And he's been very, very involved in that process and is constantly uh, including me in the plan so that we can get American attention in terms of what's happening in Senegal. Can you tell us about Boubacar or Bukar? Can you tell us about him and share his story with us? What was your friendship like with him? 
And I'm curious when, about the anthropological aesthetic and phenomenological si significance of his swimming. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks for asking that. Uh, we spent a good portion of our time doing the book project, not just in Ziegenshore, in the Gambia where the project happened or where the disaster happened, but living in Ngapuru and Simone, which is where there is a large group of individuals who they're involved in construction or they're fishermen and they spend a lot of their times on the beach, a lot of their time on the beach and have a really deep intimate connection with the sea. And so because we were living on the coast, I connected with a lot of these individuals, especially especially Bukhar, Bubakar. Um, he was he was a friend who told me about the five kilometer swim that happens from Gore Island, which is a former slave island, off the coast of Dakar, or off the coast of Senegal, where um, participants swim to the coast in this kind of reverse of, of, of what happened during slavery, right? So the idea was to get more Senegalese individuals to swim and to connect to the water but it was also this symbolic event where they're reclaiming the sea in so many different ways. Wow. So they're, they're spending time in that water in the wake of a shipwreck. And the event usually corresponds with the same weekend as the Jula disaster. Um, and also, you know, it was, it was good to get to know Bukhar. I would swim offshore with him and some of his friends and it, it gave me a sense of what it's like to be in those waters, to be in that space. Because sometimes as, as researchers, we, we put a little distance between us and our subject, right? But, um, you know, I was invited because I'm a swimmer and I was invited to go out there and swim to the buoys and swim back and train for this race. And it was, it was, it was part of the study, part of the project that I, I never envisioned when I was putting together a methodology, it was more personal than professional, but understanding what it was like to be in those waters where so many tragedies had been unfolding and continue to unfold was so important. It was my favorite chapter to write in that book about the space of the sea and what it means to people in Senegal. Wow. And terrifying, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of the sea, what role does the sea and Senegal's proximity to the sea play in its food systems? Can you comment on uh, the culinary culture in Senegal and the relationship of this sea to Senegalese food systems? Right. Well, certainly fish play a prominent role in Senegalese cuisine as well as Gambian cuisine. It's it's something that people talk about all the time. Uh, let's sit down for a plate of Sebujen or um, let's go to the market and see what fish are available. And um, so I would say it plays a very important role in Senegalese culture. And, um, you know, as you may know, I, I got hooked on eating fish when I moved to Senegal in 2017, 18. 
and uh, it now plays a role in my life. But it's also it's political. It's, it's troubling because of the way in which illegal, unreported fishing off the coast of Senegal is hoovering away those resources from Senegalese people when it's one of their only protein sources available. And it's also having interesting impacts on Senegalese people who their fishing areas have been fished out. So they're moving inland to become farmers and facing challenges with that vocation as well. But, you know, to get back to your question, it's, it's part of their culture. There's tens of thousands of pirogues, these small wooden vessels that ply the coastal waters throughout the year to catch fish. And they're brightly colored, brightly painted, beautiful, beautiful vessels that aren't just a means to an end, but they're also works of art. And, uh, you know, they're oftentimes emblazoned with Wolof proverbs or sayings and the boats have the colors of the Senegalese flag or images of Sheikh Amadou Bamba on the boats. So it is, it is the lifeblood of their culture. And it, it's, just, it's just fascinating to be in that space and to, and to watch them work and how they tie their fishing to their religious beliefs as well. Mm. Can you say more about that, the relationship of fish and fish symbolism to Senegalese identity? Yeah. Um, so I can tell you that when the pirogue fishermen go out to sea for days at a time, because oftentimes they'll go offshore for several days and live and sleep in these pirogues, that I don't know if you see a lot of fish imagery per se, but you see a lot of religious iconography uh, on the boats and then also religious practices that happen before they, they go out onto the ocean. So there's chants that take place. Um, oftentimes uh, milk will be poured on the bow of the boat uh, as, a, as, a, as a form of good luck before a long journey. There's a lot of sort of off limits traditions that we're not privy to as outsiders but uh, play an integral part of fishing beyond just getting into a boat with your gear, fishing and coming back. It's very, very closely tied to Sufi religious beliefs. But as far as, you know, fish iconography, I haven't delved into that too much just yet. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Sufis, what is the concept of Rafetnyort. Can you explain the significance of this principle? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's one of the tenets, one of the great Sufi tenets. Um, you know, the pursuit of excellence, um, hard work, uh, and and this idea of Rafetnyort, which essentially means beautiful optimism in the face of adversity. And it was such a compelling tenet to learn about because when I first read about it, I thought it was just more idealistic, right? You know, kind of a a visionary approach toward life. But when you meet with Senegalese people and you hear the way that most Senegalese people encounter their problems or their traumas, that principle of Rafet and York very much infuses their everyday lives. 
So for example, um, the team in Casamance who's getting ready to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Jewish shipwreck, they've been asking me to bring a delegation to help celebrate the event. And that's been a really hard thing for me to do because number one, people in the US are busy, but number two, it's been difficult to convince some of our partners that, that the Senegalese shipwreck uh, is one of the most important events to ever uh, happen in West Africa. And so when I share with my network in Casamance that I'm having a hard time getting buy-in from some of my partner institutions to come and support them, their attitude is very much rough at New York. You know, just, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna figure this out. As long as you're on board, we're gonna have a great celebration. And uh, it's all about, you know, it's, it's optimism. It's unbridled optimism in the face of tragedy. And it is a beautiful thing to watch because in the US it's, it's and I don't know, you know about Canada, how, how the, the climate is there, but I sometimes feel at least in my small circle that we get caught up in a lot of um, trivial matters you know, there's a lack of civility, which is something you and I have talked about. But, and, and whereas I know that's also true in Senegal, when it comes to the big things, there's very much this attitude of, it's going to be okay. Can you speak further about the role of religion in helping Senegal cope with the collective trauma of the Jula disaster? How did Muslim responses differ from Christian responses? Yeah, that's a difficult thing to unravel. You know, I did interviews in Christian communities in, in Casamance and also predominantly Muslim communities. And there's not a great division really between those areas. So for example, you could be uh, at somebody's house in the neighborhood. You could be sitting with a Muslim family and across the street is a Christian wedding going on. and the Muslim families getting ready to attend the Christian wedding or funeral. And so I didn't really see, but I also wasn't really looking for those kinds of divisions in terms of how the tragedy was handled. But I can say collectively that with all of the people I talked with, they always mentioned faith as something that got them through this tragedy and um, their connection to something higher than themselves. So their community helped them get through this. Uh, the state, not so much, but their faith in some kind of God or some kind of religion was very much a defining force in how they adjusted to their trauma. It was mentioned, I should say, in, in all but maybe one or two of my interviews, it was independently brought up as something that helped them cope um, and, you know, on a different kind of more nuanced level, many of the people I interviewed, they spoke about how they had a feeling the night of the Jula disaster before they got word about, about the capsizing, that something wasn't right. And so their connections to the world and to their family is on a, is on a very interesting, fascinating level this belief that there's something going on beyond what we can see. There's something that we can feel. 
Can you compare and contrast in more detail the South Korean Sewol disaster with the Jula? How are they similar and how are they different? Um, well, I've done some cursory research on the Sewol disaster for the book. And this is a disaster that happened off the coast of South Korea. There were a lot of school children on board that boat. Um, and so, you know, whereas I don't know a whole lot about the ship itself, the ferry that they were on, I can say that it was very, it, it was a similar ship design to the Jula. They're, they're called row, row ferries, roll on, roll off. You can take cars on them, but they're mostly passenger ships. And um, so they were both accommodating young populations. The big difference really is in the media coverage surrounding those events. So as we talked about earlier, there was a documentary that came out about the Sewol disaster that was, that was nominated for several awards. And it did a beautiful job using dash cam footage, you know, cell phone texts, video recordings to help bring that story to life. And in turn, for there to be a sense of justice for the people of South Korea who lost their children on board. Um, and I know if you followed anything with the Sewol disaster, many people ask the question, well, why did those children stay on the boat? Why were South Korean young people so compliant? And then they tied that back to South Korean culture in general. I can't really speak to that, um, you know, whether that's true or not. But I can say, you know, the context of the jewel is different, right? 1,000 additional people were on board that boat, more than should have been. They exceeded the carrying capacity. And while some of that has to do with graft and corruption, much of it has to do with something in Senegal that's known as Taranga or welcoming generosity and hospitality, whereby if you couldn't afford to get on the boat, people were allowed on the boat for free. They were given a pass. Younger children were free were free as well. They didn't have to pay. So, um, you know, to answer your question, there were a lot of similarities in terms of the demographics of young people, but there were a lot of perceived differences in terms of culture. And then the coverage of the event was very different, even though Africans, Senegalese people, much like South Koreans, they have reliable access to cell phones. They were texting their families. There is evidence that could be used to create a really beautiful documentary about this, not unlike what was done uh, in the South Korean disaster, but it was just handled very differently. Who was Haidar El Ali? Why is he a noteworthy person? Ah, uh, uh, Haidar El Ali uh, is Lebanese, Senegalese, and um, he's just a fantastic individual. He worked as a, a senior ministry official for the Senegalese government for many years, focused on environmental issues. He is a diver. Uh, recreational diver, but also a commercial diver. And that's how we connected because I have an interest in diving from my past research projects. And so I was in Senegal in 2018 and I met Dr. Moussa Sadie, who leads up the uh, 
hospital in in Dakar. He's done research on Ebola. He's a fascinating individual. And uh, he said, can I help you with anything? Can, can I help you meet anybody while you're here? And I said, I'd like to meet Idar. And I didn't think it was going to happen, Ari. But I was in Casamance and I guess word got out that I wanted to meet Idar. And there was a there was a knock at the door and it was Idar's team. And he said, do you want to come travel around Casamans for two days? And we'll talk about the Jola and we'll talk about some other events that are going on here. And I said, sure. So I got to know Idar. He, like I said, worked for the government and decided it wasn't for him. And he quit and uh, started a citizen science organization to plant mangrove trees across Senegal. And he's planted millions of them. We followed him. We watched his work and met his team. And he's decided that he can make a bigger difference operating outside the state apparatus, outside of traditional institutions. And I should say for the context of this interview that he was also one of the first people on the scene when uh, the Jula sank. He brought with him some other divers to do the very difficult job of attempting to rescue people from the hull who were trapped inside the boat, but also removing bodies out of the boat so that they could be properly buried in accordance with their tradition. So he and other pirogue fishermen were some of the first people on the scene. It wasn't the Senegalese government, it was Idar and a lot of other uh, well-intentioned, good people that put themselves at risk. Can you compare and contrast the Jula tragedy with the Titanic, which many in Western countries would be familiar with through the depiction of the Titanic uh, in film? In what way was the Jula tragedy similar to the Titanic tragedy? In what way was it different from the Titanic tragedy? Yes, that's a that's a good question. And I'm always afraid of drawing a, a false equivalency, but the reason I often compare the two is because it's a way of getting young people interested in a story beyond their borders, right? So for me, the biggest similarities, and this is something I mentioned a little earlier briefly, is, is in 2002, in Casamance, the southern part of Senegal, there were a lot of people who just didn't have opportunities in their backyard. There was no existing post-secondary institution, no college, um, no jobs. And so they were getting on this boat, quite literally, like to find a better life. And, and so it was a metaphor for something better and bigger in the North to be found. And a lot of these people went back and forth. So it's not like the Titanic in that sense, but they were pursuing something larger than themselves to support their families. And that's a very similar narrative to what we know about the Titanic. No, it was, um, it was filled with people of all different classes who were trying to find their way to the Americas. And, and the jewel is much the same, but on a smaller scale. So, so there are there are quite a lot of similarities. I was at a, a talk at Boston University and in the African Studies program, and somebody asked me the question about 
the gender breakdown of the people who died on the ship. And they said, what was that like? Was it like the Titanic? Was it different? And it was a fascinating question because of the 2000, roughly 2000 people that were on board the Jula, 600 of them were women, but only one of those women survived and she was pregnant, which in and of itself is a great story. She's alive today. She's 18 years old now, is that right? 20 years old. Um, and so this, this, this scholar at Boston University said, well, what about the women and children first motto? How did that operate in Senegal? Because what we know about the Titanic, that's always been, we've always been mindful of women and children to the life rafts first, right? Absolutely. But so I would say that's, that's one of the differences is, is the gender breakdown on the Senegalese boat. And, you know, we can only speculate as to what happened, but in talking with people who survived the event, what most of them said was that at the time the event occurred, 1130 at night, most of the women on the boat were, they were spatially segregated. They were operating within their own sphere of tending to their children, probably already asleep with their children, Whereas many of the people who survived, those 64 plus survivors, were on top of the boat. There was music, there was dancing. And so when the boat capsized, they were able to survive by clinging to some of the debris. And so I don't know if I'm going down a rabbit trail here, Ari, but there's a lot of similarities if you look at the macro between those two stories but there's also some cultural differences in, in terms of who survived and who didn't. Um, many of those women were confined to spaces, like I said, taking care of their children. A lot of people, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to blame the victim, the victims, but many people didn't know how to swim. And even if they could, it's, it would be daunting to try to survive for 12, 14 hours before rescue boats came. But certainly at the time, a lot of women in Senegal were not encouraged, how do I say this, to, to engage in fitness activities, those kinds of things. And that's changing now. You see more women on the beaches in Dakar, but it, it, it isn't, it is, it's different than what we experience in Canada or the US. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, can you comment? on the significance of the Bateau Jula Memorial. Yes, I'm curious absolutely. about yeah, what it says symbolically and aesthetically about the tragedy. My sense is in talking with our colleagues in, in Senegal, especially Klasamans, that people want a memorial and they want a physical structure that represents one of the greatest tragedies beyond the the MFDC war that's taking place in Senegal right now. They want some kind of physical memorial where they can go and remember what happened. And I think this is in part because the Jola ship itself has still not been raised from those relatively shallow coastal waters. And, and the survivors network is also hoping that that will happen. Um, but in the meantime, having a dedicated place where people can go and remember their families and recognize this actually happened 
is profound and it's necessary. And fortunately, after many years of talking about this memorial, it is now being constructed and hopefully it will be at least partially completed or, or even finished by this September for the memorial event. I would be curious if you're open to it, um, if I could share with you a poem by Derek Walcott, the St. Lucian poet. I'm curious if we discuss it together, what connections it might have to the Jula tragedy, what it might say to Senegal. I would be curious what your interpretation of it is. Um, I'll read it out, but as I read it, like I'd be grateful if you could think about what it might say to Senegal and what lessons the poem might convey to thinking about the, the Jula tragedy. It goes as follows. It's called The Sea is History. Where are your monuments, your battles, martyrs? Where is your tribal memory, sirs, in that gray vault? The sea, the sea has locked them up. The sea is history. First, there was the heaving oil, heavy as chaos. Then, like a light at the end of a tunnel, the lantern of a caravel, and that was Genesis. Then there were the packed cries, the shit, the moaning. Exodus, bone soldered by coral to bone, mosaics mantled by the benediction of the shark's shadow. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Then came the plucked wires or sunlight of the seafloor. The plangent harps of the Babylonian bondage has the white cowries clustered like manacles on the drowned women. And those were the ivory bracelets of the Song of Solomon, but the ocean kept turning black pages looking for history. Then came the men with eyes heavy as anchors who sank without tombs, brigands who barbecued cattle, leaving their charred ribs like palm leaves on the shore, then roaming mabid, rabid maw of the tidal wave swallowing Port Royal, and that was Jonah, but where is your renaissance? Sir, it is locked in them sea sands out there past the reef's moiling shelf where the men of war floated down. Strop on those goggles, I'll guide you there myself. It's all subtle and submarine through colonnades of coral past the Gothic windows of sea fans to where the crusty grouper onyx-eyed blinks weighted by its jewels like a bald queen. And these like groined caves with barnacles pitted like stone are our cathedrals, the furnace before the hurricanes, Gomorrah, bones ground by windmills into marl and cornmeal. That was lamentations. That was just lamentations. It was not history. Then came the white system. Then came like scum on the river's drying lip, the brown reeds of villages mantling and congealing into towns. At evening, the midges choirs, and above them, the spires, lancing the side of God as his son, S-O-N, set. That was the New Testament. Then came the white sisters clapping to the waves of progress, and there was emancipation jubilation of jubilations vanishing swiftly as the sea's lace dries in the sun. 
but that was not history. That was only faith. And then each rock broke into its own nation. Then came the Synod of Flies. Then came the Secretarial Huron. Then came the bullfrog bellowing for a vote. Fireflies with bright ideas and bats like jetting ambassadors and the mantis like khaki police and the furred caterpillars of judges examining each case closely and then in the dark ears of ferns and in the salt chuckle of rocks with their sea pools there was the sound like a rumor without any echo of history really beginning wow that is a really really powerful poem um i assume you've read it several times right Mm -hmm. um and I, this is my first encounter with it, okay. with Eric Walcott's work. Um, but I have to say that it's almost like reading a poem to the people of Senegal saying that we see you, we understand what happened and that these tragedies that are buried beneath the sea, that we need a concrete marker to remember what happened, right? We need some kind of memorial because we can't see the tragedy and where it sits now, which is literally in only 60 feet of water. Um, this is a this is a beautiful poem, and I know for a fact that Eli Diada, this would speak to him personally. This notion that we need something to recognize what happened from this tragic event. You know, I was in Veracruz last summer uh, doing a project with Department of Ed. And, you know, Veracruz is the site in which many slaves were received from West Africa. And it's an, it's an important space. But one of the things that came up as they're starting to recognize their African heritage in Mexico through the new census is that we need some kind of recognition, some physical structure that reminds us of what happened here in this space. Otherwise there's kind of an erasure. And I think museums can provide a lot of comfort in these cases, like we see with the Holocaust Museum in DC or you know, the Women's Museum that Smithsonian's now building mm-hmm. in DC as well. But thanks for sharing this, this really spoke to me Thank you. Thanks for responding to it. Can you, how do you compare and contrast the Exxon Valdez tragedy and the prestige tragedy to the Jula tragedy? What similarities and differences can you describe between these different tragedies? So the Exxon Valdez, Exxon Valdez, and then, um, Sorry, what's the other one you mentioned? It's the, the Spanish. Prestige. Yes, the, okay, pres- the Prestige. Yes, the Prestige oil tanker sinking off the coast of Galicia. That's a really interesting question because the Exxon Valdez, we've heard so much about that in terms of who was culpable, who was to blame. Um, I think it received a lot of press because it was an important disaster, as they all are, but because it was affecting what we see, what we know to be a pristine environment in the north. Um so there's kind of some sub comparisons because the accident off of off of Galicia in Spain was was not very well publicized, even though the sinking of that ship uh, is still causing problems in the region because of the leakage of oil. So to answer your question, maybe 
the Exxon Valdez is like the Titanic. Wow. <laughs> and um, the uh, sinking off the coast of Spain is a lot more like the Jula. It's just, it's just kind of gone unrecognized and untold. And I know that PBS has done a few stories on the sinking of the prestige, but beyond that, it hasn't received a lot of press Mm. maybe because of where it happened in the world, maybe because when it happened, wasn't it in 2002? Mm -hmm. So that would also kind of align with what happened with the Jula and the timing. What did you learn about yourself during your process of researching and writing this book? How did you grow as a person through the process of researching and writing this book? Well, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, there's a couple ways to tell a story. You know, when it comes to something like a shipwreck in an African country, I, was, I went in being really mindful of the fact that I'm a white woman from the United States sharing a story about an African shipwreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was conceptualizing how to approach this at the same time that the book American Dirt came out, which I'm sure you're familiar with about migration to the U.S. and some of the criticisms of, of that book because the author herself was not a migrant and so was was accused of centering herself in a story that wasn't her own. So that was on my mind when I went into into Senegal. However, um, one of the caveats is that I didn't go to Senegal to study African people or to study this tragedy. Uh, I was asked to come there. I was specifically asked, can you write this book and tell American audiences what happened? So I found comfort in that because I didn't want it to be a narcissistic endeavor. It's just not how I grew up. It's not my style. Um, So to answer your question, I, you know, I, I learned a lot about trying to find that delicate balance between not centering a story from just your perspective, trying to couch it as an academic, as a scholar, but also wanting to make it readable. You know, some of the chapters in that book that are the most readable are the ones where I I talk about what it was like to live in Senegal and what it was like to swim with my Senegalese colleagues or to sit in their living rooms and have them tell me stories about a son they lost and to call me their daughter uh, three weeks after I've known them. Um, I, I learned a lot about just how far you can get in life if you just open yourself up to conversations like this. Sorry, that's a very emotional question, Ari. Yeah. I appreciate your reply. I, I humbly appreciate your reply. Thank you. Who is your friend Thierno? Can you say more about him? Oh, sure. Uh, uh, Thierno, he worked at a, a tiny little store uh, not far from where I was staying, where my family and I were staying. And I would go down there frequently to purchase snacks or gum or but mostly as an excuse to have conversations with people. And, you know, after a couple months, I was, I would sit in this little store where people would buy cigarettes and drinks. And, and I would just, I would just chat with Cherno about his work and, and, uh, 
And I learned a lot about, about Casamance and some of the struggles that were unfolding there. Now, uh, he was in his 20s then, I think early 20s. So he wasn't old enough to remember the tragedy, but he had lost a lot of family members, uh, extended family members, because in Senegal, everyone, everyone knows somebody who was on board the Jola because of the way tribes and networks and, and families are sustained. So your brother could be your third cousin, the way you conceptualize that. And uh, so he, he and I spent a lot of time just talking, not just about the tragedy of the Jula, but, but the everyday economic struggles of living in Casamance and feeling marginalized from the rest of the Senegalese state. And it was great to hear what young people thought about Senegal, its past, its present, its future. So after a while, I felt like I worked at that little kiosk with Cherno. In a certain passage in your book, you allude to your grandfather, a Norwegian-born U.S. immigrant who spent his life working in the shipyards of Brooklyn's Bethlehem Steel, one of North America's oldest companies. He built boats, could swim far and fast, and he lived up to his Norse, Norse name of Thor. Ships, boats, canoes, zodiacs, and water in general course through our blood. Can you tell us more about your grandfather? Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, uh, my grandfather was all of those things you just said. And I grew up um, in New Jersey, um, not far from where he was in Brooklyn. So we'd go there on the weekends to visit him. And he was my role model. You know, he died when I was 12 years old, right before we moved to California. But those formative experiences with him, that kind of can-do attitude, really, really made a mark on me and my siblings. You know, he would he would get in the water when we go up to Vermont, and he would just start swimming miles, and uh, that encouraged me to take on a um, an avocation of swimming for most of my life to be kind of fearless and bold and to try new things. Um, he was just an extremely gentle, extraordinary person who was also a union member and activist. And he was just an exceptional individual. And I can tell you that I have the honor this summer of traveling to Norway uh, for a month on a Fulbright Hayes Fellowship. Wow. And as someone who spent her whole life exploring other world regions, it's interesting to reach this age and to start learning about my own ancestral roots. So I'm super excited about that opportunity. Wow. What was it like for you living in Senegal? What are some of your reminiscences of the country? Can you share with us some details about its culture as you experienced it? Yes, yes. Uh, well, you know, women have a different role in Senegalese society, parts of it. So as an outsider coming in as a woman of middle age and wanting to accomplish certain things with our team, I was really mindful of how I would be perceived as an outsider. But as I'm sure you know, a Western researcher coming into a country, you're perceived as kind of a third gender and people were receptive. People talked with me, doors opened. 
I love the experience of living in Senegal. My husband came, my, I think, like I said, he was eight years old. My son came, uh-huh. he had a phenomenal experience there, you know, phenomenal coming uh-huh. from a place like Colorado, living on the beaches of, of Senegal and in, in some of these rural communities, he just fit right in where innovation and bootstrapping seem to be uh, the first go-to. So you don't go to a store to buy a toy, you make a toy off of something you found on the beach. I caught him creating a checker set on the beach of old bottle caps and playing checkers with some of the kids in the area. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. And I, and I keep getting drawn back to do more research. Even though this book project is over, our relationship is ongoing. And so we have a lot of projects lined up to return, inshallah. Wow. Can you comment on the political fallout of the Jula disaster. What was the political situation like in Senegal prior to this catastrophe? And how was Senegal's politics different after this tragedy? Can you describe the background to the tragedy and the aftermath of the tragedy in terms of social and political dynamics in Senegal? Yes, definitely. And I'll do this a little gingerly and delicately. Uh, There has been an ongoing separatist movement known as the MFDC movement in Southern Senegal since the 1980s. And others might describe this conflict differently than I am. So just to be mindful of that, but the separatist movement is, is really driven by the fact that many people in the South of Senegal where all the natural resources lie have felt marginalized for a very long time in terms of the larger Senegalese state structure. Uh, The GDP is lower, literacy rates are lower in parts of that area, not all. And so leading up to the Jula tragedy in 2002, these other larger political processes were also occurring whereby those individuals in Casamance already felt disenfranchised from the North And then when the tragedy happened, in many ways it served to exacerbate that marginalization. People felt erased, not recognized by the state. And that's an ongoing problem today, especially as the MFDC crisis is starting to heat up again. Now I'm not trying to draw causation here. It's really just correlation, but certainly those community members felt like they didn't have the same resources as people in the North did. They weren't treated the same in terms of educational opportunities. Now, one outcome was that Senegal built a university in in the wake of that disaster. So now people living in Casamance can actually go to a college that's literally in their backyard. So that's one exciting change. But um, the other part of this, Ari, is that, you know, you've read the book, so you know this, but one of the main reasons that the Jula disaster happened from a practical perspective is that the ship itself had been out of operation for a while for repairs to one of its engines. 
And then it was brought back, many people agree, prematurely, brought back into operation prematurely, even though the other engine hadn't been fully repaired, which led to the listing of the ship to port. And so a lot of people ask the question, well, why? Why was it brought back into operation if it wasn't ready? And what most people agree, and the report, the inquiry that came out a few years after the disaster also concurs, is that the Senegalese government uh, wanted to wanted to adjust the optics by showing that the country was unified, unified, and this is all happening in advance of an important election. So they wanted that boat back in operation so they could travel north and south to show that uh, we're moving forward with the war in Casamance. We are a united country. But the fact of the matter is the, the ship just wasn't ready to be moving again. It had some faulty mechanical issues that is one of the many reasons it led to the disaster. In your acknowledgments, you thank many people. Can you share with us anything about the people who helped you write this book? Can you tell any stories about the anonymous individuals who assisted you? Can you tell us about the character traits and personalities of both the named and unnamed people who made a contribution to this book? Yes, um, some of them certainly I can name and others probably not, but uh, Professor Charles Becker, who spends a lot of his time in Senegal, he was instrumental in getting me the list of victims from the ship and their ages. He painstakingly put together that list through field work. And that's featured in the back of the book to honor their survivors. And so I sent Charles a copy of the book. I'm hoping he'll be there at the commemoration in, in the fall in Ziegenshor. So he played a really big role. Um, Ellie Diada certainly uh, was, a, was an ally in all of this. I consider this a, a partnership rather than a personal project. Um, Major, Major Diada, who I, I write about in the book, uh, he, he was also somebody that I acknowledged he played a very large role in connecting me with other individuals who wanted to be interviewed. What role did resilience play in Senegalese responses to this tragedy? What was unique about the forms of resilience that manifested in Senegal? Yes, I've been thinking a lot about this question. You know, how do we define resilience? Is it short-term resilience? Is it an action? Is it a way of thinking? And I, and I can say in this particular instance, in Casamance, Senegal, which is the region I'm focused on, that this has taught me a lot about the long game of resilience, that, that these communities are still fighting for recognition over what happened in the crisis. They still want a memorial. They wanna take care of the orphans that were left behind. Um, they're concerned with the brain drain of people leaving Casamance to pursue better jobs in the wake of this tragedy. 
But for them, resilience is really about this long game of we're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep asking our government for what is rightfully ours. And so it's taught me that, you know, here in the United States, we're very much prone to thinking about immediate impacts. But in Senegal, it's, it's kind of an enduring approach. These communities can continue to stick with it even 20 years after the fact. They're undaunted. And I find that incredibly inspirational. What does your book contribute to discourses surrounding Afro-pessimism? Yes, another good question. Um, I had somebody ask me once, you know, isn't this another example, the story of a shipwreck? of another example of Afro-pessimism, of something going wrong. And that's a legitimate question, isn't it? That we're writing about a disaster. Um, but in the book, you know, Ellie and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't a disaster narrative. It wasn't just a casualty count comparing this to the Titanic. Uh-huh. It's not about the numbers. Um, it's about showing an example first of all, what happened and creating an awareness about an event that we know so little about. And then from there, moving on to understand that these groups are finding ways to organize and resist the state apparatus in the face of all this. And I don't think that's a reason for pessimism. I think that's a reason for optimism and beautiful optimism really. And it ties in with so many other untold undervalued stories in Africa today. Uh, like off the coast of Senegal in Cape Verde, those small islands. Here's a small republic that we hear little about that is leading the way in terms of conservation and alternative energy initiatives. I think this is the opposite of pessimism. It's, It's trying to find a way to adjust our lens on Africa, not all countries, of course, but to understand that African sources of knowledge have been undervalued and we're losing out as a result of not understanding these community-based systems or these technologies, these innovations, the way in which people are bootstrapping themselves is incredibly inspirational. Can you comment on the lessons for memory and collective memory of Senegal's memorials of the Jula. Right. So even though the Bato Jula Memorial in Ziegenshore has not been constructed yet, I think that many of the local people in Casamance took it upon themselves to create micro memorials mm-hmm. because they didn't want to wait for the state to do that on their behalf. And that means that it, just like with anywhere in the world, memory, acknowledgement, the fear of forgetting is what they call it. In Senegal, those micro memorials played a really important role. So you'll see murals of the Jola ship painted across compounds in the South and then in rural areas in Sedio. So, just like the cemeteries that are that are kept up by local families instead of state officials or sextons as we have in the United States that take care of cemeteries. 
those places are critical for people so they just don't forget what happened. And that's a theme that keeps coming up time and time again in interviews is that we just don't want this story to be erased or to be buried. Who was Alpha Omar? Why is his story noteworthy? So Alpha Omar was a, he was a college student who had traveled on the Jola on September 26th, the night of September 26th, because he was pursuing a degree in geography that he couldn't acquire in his own community. He had to travel, he had to leave his family for an extended period of time. Um, and he died on board that sh the ship that night and I, I put that vignette in the end of the book because a lot of my students are reading this book or I hope they're reading it and they're geography majors and to draw a parallel between their lives and the lives of somebody in Senegal, this concept that all Alpha was doing was trying to pursue knowledge. He was trying to pursue a degree and this is not so different from what a lot of kids and young people in my own backyard are doing to go to college, the sacrifices yeah. they're making, how they're doing this to support their families. Most of the students I work with at the University of Northern Colorado, well, many of them, 42% identify as first-generation scholars, first generation in their family to even receive an undergraduate degree. So I put that in there, hoping that that story would resonate with them and draw them closer to an area of the world that seems so far away. Um, I didn't know Alpha, but I met people who knew him. And uh, it's just astounding to think that he's no different from the students we know and work with every single day at the University of Northern Colorado. There's, there are many Wolof proverbs in your book that were very moving and that have a lot of wisdom in them. One of them that you share is on page 143. It says, it is better to walk than curse the road. It is better to walk than curse the road. Can you explain what you mean, what this proverb means and how it relates to the content of your book? Sure, that's a really good question. So honestly, a lot of the wall of proverbs, I sometimes have a hard time understanding because I apply those proverbs to my own cultural context rather than Senegal. Um, like the sea is never pregnant, which is an interesting Wolof proverb. Um, because it's been around for a long time, even before the overfishing began mm -hmm. to occur. Yeah. But the, the proverb you just mentioned um, is, I, I think that it, it's sort of emblematic of the way a lot of Senegalese people are, that instead of complaining about something, find a workaround. You know, if you can't take the road, you can't hitch a ride or a boat or a plane, just walk, just keep moving. And I don't know if that's accurate, Ari, I'm probably reading into it more than I should be, but that's my take after five, six years of working in Senegal, that there's always a solution. And a lot of it involves knowing that you have the agency to make a difference despite what's happening at an institutional level. Wow. What are some of the consequences of plastic pollution on the West African coast? 
Yes. Well, there's the visible manifestation of plastic. You know, the beaches in, in Gaparu, south of Dakar, Simone, um, these were once pristine beaches and, you know, peppered with seashells. And if you stroll those beaches now, today, you'll see a lot of trash that's brought in to the inshore environment, just on the beaches, not just on the beaches, but also um, while you're swimming in those waters. You can, you can swim through plastic bags that, that uh, dominate that area. And some people joke that there's more plastic than there are fish now. And so some of that plastic pollution comes from Senegal, but a lot of it is brought in on dominant ocean currents across the Atlantic. And I'm sure you know this, but Senegal, well, I should say Africa in general, has taken a lead on banning plastics more than any other uh, region of the world. Not all states, but many of them actually have plastic bag bans in place. And so they're taking those steps forward um, to reduce consumption, especially Rwanda has taken great strides. But uh, it is, it's a tough sight to see, to see beaches that have that much pollution on them. Uh, that said, you know, hearkening back to what we said about Senegalese people, what you'll see happen in Ngapuru is the people who work out on the beaches regularly, because many of them don't go to fitness clubs to work out. They work out on the beaches. They do push-ups, they swim, um, you name it. They will spend part of their day raking up the beach and cleaning it up. And it isn't part of any official mandated program. It's just something that people do because they use that space and they revere it. Uh, so that's, you know, that's another example of kind of community-based solutions that you'll see in the area. But having said that, it's, it's also really difficult to see that much inshore pollution, especially plastics. It's a very pervasive problem. Another quote I'd like to ask you about is the following. It's on page 137 in your book. You write, so the Jula disaster for Jula people was not just a mechanical disaster, but an event that was tied to good and evil and explained as such. The failure of the government to return bodies to bereaved families complicated the norms of these cultures, rendering them unable to pray, to pay proper respect and make meaning out of the greatest tragedy of their lifetime. Can you elaborate and can you say more about this? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging subject to talk about, but the reality is that um, the majority of bodies on the Jula have still, have still not been recovered after 20 years. And, uh, and this is very troubling, troubling for people in, in Casamance especially, excuse me. Um, so when the tragedy occurred, and many of those bodies were, were brought to the coast to be laid to rest. Oftentimes they were unrecognizable. So people were burying bodies in numbered graves rather than named graves. And um, sometimes they were able to identify bodies based on what they were wearing or maybe like a spiritual necklace they had in their possession. But for the most part, it was really difficult to identify bodies. And so that made memorials really problematic and it made 
funerary practices really challenging because as you know, you know, Christian and Muslim culture, those rites of passage are very, very important. There are very specific protocols to follow when somebody dies, especially in the Muslim faith, right? And so uh, that's not something that they were, they were able to accomplish as a result of that. And now, Ari, I forgot the first part of your question. Um, I was asking you, I'm going to edit this out, but I was scrolling for my <laughs> next question for you. Um, <laughs> It was, um, I, it was about the failure of the government to return corpses and bodies to bereaved families. And I was asking you to comment on that quotation. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, 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 yeah. It's, it's the quotation on page 137 in your book where the, um, yeah, where it says the following. Um, so the Jula disaster for, Jola people was not just a mechanical disaster, but an event that was tied to good and evil and explained as such. The failure of the government to return bodies for bereaved families complicated the norms of these cultures, rendering them unable to pray proper respect and make meaning out of the greatest, greatest tragedy of their lifetime. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, the question is important because it's one of the most important questions about this event, which is, you know, how do you properly mourn a disaster as large as this when you, there's no closure for lack of a better word. There were so many children on board this boat that were never removed from the hull of the boat, even though it's not an impossibility to make this happen. The European Union offered funds to make this happen and the Senegalese government declined. So it was possible to provide closure. The government didn't because they say this is an ongoing investigation. And that has left a lot of families that I've spoken with even today feeling untethered, like, like there was no way to move on until they could go through those rituals. So they went through them kind of symbolically. They had funerals, they had mourning, but it wasn't the way it was supposed to be in their traditions. And that, and that made many people feel ungrounded. Wow. I'm very humbled to hear you say that. Oh, thanks, Ari. Yeah, I'm and, sincerely, genuinely humbled. Thank you. And we're going, we're going in September, we're going to take a boat out to the site of the wreck we have the geographic coordinates and we're going to, we're going to have a memorial there um, to remember this event and recognize that this happened. This did happen. This did happen. And uh, so that's exciting to bring some of the family members there if they're willing and to know that there are entities outside of Casamance that genuinely care about this historic event and this tragedy. <laughs> You alluded earlier on in our dialogue to Major Diata. Can you tell us a bit more about him and his personal story? Yes. Um, Major Diata is one of the first people that I met in Casamance. And I was, I was really blessed to be able to meet him because, you know, he opened up his home and told me the story about losing his 19-year-old son, Abdullah, who was in college. He wanted to be a doctor. 
And one of the most, you know, riveting things about Major Diada's story is that he was in the military, hence the name Major Diada, Major. And so he worked closely with the government. He was intimately uh, tied up in those circles. He was a very important person and still is in his own community. Um, but when his son died, um, he played this really important role in his community in bringing people together to recognize what happened and also to make sure that those, those memories were not erased. So he single-handedly raises funds each year to go to Cemetery Canteen, which is just outside of Ziegenschor, to paint the walls of the cemetery and to bring flowers and to have events. And he is this extraordinarily gentle human being. When I first sat down with him, he had had a letter he had written in French, three pages long, to describe what happened. And he just read it slowly. And he, he subverts all of the images we have in our collective memory of, of what the military represents in the world. And he, he showed me how complicated people can be. He is a military man, but he's also a community member. He's a dad, he's a husband. And now he's a family member to me. Uh, so we've kept this ongoing dialogue since 2016 to help us remember what happened. And he, he was just extraordinary, Ari. He was great with my family and my son and opened up his home to us. And, and you know, I had, my father was sick at the time and it's, and my father passed away in 2018. So it's been nice to have another father out there in the world, even though he's thousands of miles away. There's one passage I'd be curious to ask you about. It's slightly long, but I hope you can bear with me. I'm going to ask you about Gerard, the individual you refer to as Gerard on page 62. Um, you write as follows. It is November 2018. It is the middle of the day, the sun high and blazing, and we are huddled on the beach speaking with Mui, who works as a plunger, a diver, lobster, tra trapping lobster some 10 kilometers offshore of Simone. We are arranging a trip to free dive for these crustaceans with their long muscular tails, but mostly to become acquainted with the day-to-day -day operations of a fishing boat. Few people play in the surf. And then suddenly the group witnesses Gerard, an apartment security guard, jogging off, jogging out to the surf in full security gear. Black boots, long pants, collared shirt, baseball camp before he enters the water to rescue a woman struggling in the waves. Ebo, a restaurant manager, has also witnessed the event and begins to remove his shoes and roll up his long pants. But it is Gerard who arrives at the scene, and like a Senegalese superhero, he carries a tourist out of the water until he's able to safely set her down in a chair. Later, I learn the story with a mixture of hand gestures and broken wall-off how Gerard's cell phone is now dead since he didn't have time to remove essentials from pockets before making his rescue. It is a story so fitting and timely given, the given our accounts of Senegalese safety at sea. It reveals the complexity and nuance 
of these locals who are still skilled at reading the ocean. The sea and Senegal's relation to it is a book that I do not yet understand. I will learn later that Gerard and his family are from Ziguinchor, the city that lost the most lives in the Jula tragedy. Who is Gerard? Who is Mui? Who is Ibo? Can you elaborate on this story for us? Yeah, sure. I'm really glad you you read that passage. Thanks, Ari. Uh, so Gerard and Ibu worked at a at a hotel that had kind of an apartment complex where we lived. And uh, we got to know them really well. Uh, so Ibu, he worked at the restaurant. And as you said, Gerard was a security guard and Luis was was just, he was a fisherman who I had some conversations with about the sea and, and piracy, you know, all really good people. But that day is still seared in my memory because, you know, Gerard, later on, he would tell me he was not a big swimmer, but the way in which he reacted to save essentially a tourist was very impressive. I think it gives you a sense of this kind of can-do Senegalese identity. So uh, not only did he rescue this French woman, and not only, I hate to say it, but not only was there very little gratitude for his rescue from from the woman, but he almost destroyed his cell phone in the process and, and didn't even really complain about it. And I think that's pretty typical. He casually mentioned that to us later. Unfortunately, I had brought with me a bag of those desiccant packs where you can just, it's kind of like putting in a bag of rice, but I suppose more enhanced. So his, we were able to save his cell phone. So he saved a human and we were able to save his cell phone. Thank you for sharing that story. That must have been very profound to watch and observe before your own eyes. It was, uh, it was very profound. Um, can I ask you about another person? Uh, Monsieur Sene, uh, do you feel comfortable telling us about Monsieur Sene? Oh yes. Um, so, so Monsieur Sene, uh, I met him through his son DJ. His son DJ uh, spent a lot of time on the beaches of Simone. And uh, one day I was running along the beach and DJ came up to me and said, why are you running? Women don't run. (laughs) So I started running with him and then he became a friend of our family and eventually tutored our son in Wolof in French, young guy, just about ready to go to college. So he he, uh, invited us to Tabaski in Senegal, which is a very important religious event, as you know. And um, that's when I got to meet his father, Monsieur Sain, who uh, is a very religious man, is a religious leader in his community. And we spent a lot of time that day just talking about the sea as, as a physical space, but also as a, as you said, phenomenological place, 
as a as a cognitive space. And it was a it was a it was an eye-opening conversation because it's not the kind of thing you can read about in books. You know, he had been a fisherman, some of his sons are fishermen. So he was the one who first introduced me to some of the spiritual practices that take place before people go at sea, go to sea. And he was guarded at first, partly because I'm an outsider, but also because I'm a woman. But he did share uh, some of those interesting practices. And it was a it was a beautiful day to celebrate Tabaski with his family and to sit there on the beaches uh, on this sacred day in Senegal. Thank you. Can I ask you about Mbaye Ngom? Can you tell us about him? Can you share with us why he's significant? Absolutely. Um, so Mbai Ngom uh, is the brother of Falu Ngom, who is a professor of anthropology at Boston University. And so Falu is from Senegal, born in Ziegenshore, uh, not a very, very well um, resourced area of the planet, but uh, Falu Ngam went on to get a scholarship to come to the U.S. He is now a very successful professor at Boston University, and he's a Guggenheim scholar, and his brother Mbai is, I don't want to say following in his footsteps, but he's equally brilliant and equally motivated, and so um, Falu connected me to his brother, and uh, his brother in the early days of the research project really helped connect me to some people for interviews. And so that's how I got to know Mbai. He's universally well-liked in Ziegenshore. So it was really great to have entree into local communities because of his connections. And uh, yes, I believe I talk quite about him and his family in the book. You know, they appreciate their privacy, but at the same time, they were really instrumental in making this project happen by being so encouraging and consistently saying, yes, you know, you're an outsider, but you've been asked to be here. We've asked you to write this story. So please don't give up. Wow. Um, if you don't want me asking this, are there any individuals that you wrote about in this book who have read the book? Are there any individuals who you refer to in the book that have read the book since it's been published? Yes. Well, I'm about to find that out when we go in December or September because I'm bringing several copies. But um, Ellie has read the book and, you know, it's in English. So that's part of the problem is I need to get it translated either to French or, or Wolof for more people to read it or even Jola. There's so many different languages that are spoken in Casamance and some that are not. Um, but my hope is that we can get it translated or to kind of extend what you're asking, Ellie and I have talked about doing uh, a self-published book that's more geared toward middle schoolers or high schoolers so they can learn about what happened at a younger age uh, because not a lot of people have access to this book right now. And hopefully that will change when I go there in September. But we, we want more people um, in the U.S. to know about this too. Another Wolof proverb I'd love to ask you to elaborate on is the sea is never pregnant. The sea is never pregnant. What is its significance? What does it 
its meaning? And how does this proverb relate to the Jula tragedy? Mm -hmm. So I oftentimes get the meaning of Wolof proverbs wrong because I, I look at them through my own lens. And so I, I put that proverb down in the book on the chapter about the sea because I thought it was an interesting connection to this notion that, well, this reality that the Atlantic coastal waters are being overfished. Uh, so I'm not really sure what it means for Senegalese culture, but what I've been told is that it means that you really have to work when you're out at sea. It's not going to come easy for you. It's not going to, fish just aren't going to birth themselves. You have to go out into the ocean and sometimes be there for three, four days at a time away from your family, sleeping on these pirogues, eating on these pirogues, talking on these pirogues, and then hope that you get a good catch. But it's, it's certainly not a simple process fishing. It's a hard life. Um, but for me, the quote had meaning because I was looking at this project from the context of here's a culture that has faced this huge tragedy, the loss of human life, but they're also grappling with climate change, coastal erosion and overfishing. And um, it's not easy, but somehow they're, somehow they, they keep pursuing what they need to pursue to keep their families alive and to sustain their livelihoods. So the short answer is, I don't really know what it meant in its original form. I only know what it, what it means now and based on my experiences in Senegal. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. As we bring our dialogue to a close, one final question I'd like to ask you is, what are you working on now as your current research? What are you working on next as your subsequent project? Oh yes, thank you. Uh, I am. I have a book project right now focused on Rwanda, which I've alluded to a few times. Um, and the larger take on that is examining African solutions, African knowledge systems, and how we've sometimes overlooked those. Very oftentimes we've overlooked those in favor of Western ideas and processes. And the overarching question is, what if African solutions in many cases are just better ones, but we're ignoring them and what we have to learn from that. So I've specifically focused on the plastic bag ban in Rwanda and some of the other measures being taken to combat climate change and how Rwanda has really bootstrapped it's itself after the genocide. So that's my current project, but I'm a geographer. So we tend to focus on short-term projects and then we move to another area. Not always true, but sometimes true. But for the next year or so, that's where my focus will be. I wish you only the best of luck with that new work. Oh, thank you, Ari. Thank you. Um, as we bring our dialogue to a close, I wanted to say to Karen that I could not have been more grateful for your time. And I thank you wholeheartedly for everything that you taught me, for everything you sacrificed to put into this book and for everything that you have done for the people of Senegal and the families of the victims of the Jula tragedy. Um, on behalf of all our listeners and all Senegalese and West Africans who were impacted by the tragedy, 
I wholeheartedly thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ari. I appreciate the opportunity. I genuinely do. Thank you. As we end today, I wanted to sign off by saying that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books and African Studies podcast. I have been humbled to be in dialogue with Karen Barton, who is Professor of Geography, GIS, and Sustainability at the University of Northern Colorado. We have been discussing her book, Africa's Jula Shipwreck, Causes and Consequences of a Humanitarian Disaster, published in Lanham, Maryland, by Lexington Books, 2020. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you.